This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Most of us have the best of intentions to eat better, cut back on takeout, and spend more time with family. And then real life happens. Gobble is the meal prep delivery service designed for real life. It is an easy and delicious way to create healthy mealtime habits for your busy family, even if your busy family is just two people, like my family, which means we often, like can really tell ourselves it's okay to get takeout a lot of the time. But when the meal only takes 15 minutes to prepare, which is what gobble meals take, I mean, we, we're barely even deciding what to order for takeout in 15 minutes. I mean, we barely agreed on where to order from, much less actually getting the order in in 15 minutes. So 15 minutes is super fast, and I don't need to explain probably that these meals are a lot healthier than takeout, or why do I always call it takeout? It's delivery. It's delivery. Let's see, in the past couple weeks, beef bourguignon with mashed potatoes, filet mignon with asparagus and blue cheese butter. That's a date night meal. That's what that is. And it's just 15 minutes to prepare. And most of the time, just one pan. I'm actually just looking at the steak stuff that we've had recently, but there's also been a bunch of really good seafood recipes, including one for day boat scallops with curried cauliflower and couscous, as well as Louisiana shrimp and grits. That is some down-home yummy comfort food. So if you are interested, my listeners have a special deal available to them. Dinner for two for three nights for just $36. Again, that's dinner for two for three nights for just $36. That's barely an order for one um, if you're getting delivery in these parts. And if you want that offer, you have to go to my special URL. That's gobble.com slash friends. Gobble.com slash friends for dinner for two for three nights for just $36. Gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Today's show tackles an issue that comes up a lot when I talk to strangers about this show. I tell them the general concept, and then they say, hey, you know, I have a aunt, uncle, dad, mom, grandfather, neighbor that has become a Trump supporter, like a, a really, really big Trump supporter, you know, kind of a conspiracy theorist. What do I do? It's funny that that question is so common in a way, because although it's almost a pop culture cliche, we talk about um, the awkward dinners at Thanksgiving and whatnot. I don't think we take seriously as a society the problem of the radicalization of older Americans. 
We talk a lot about the radicalization of young white Americans, and for good reason. Those are the people that have done some pretty horrific acts of violence because of their radicalization. But older Americans are going in the same ideological direction, a good chunk of them at least. And while they may not be prone to committing acts of violence, they vote. They vote in large numbers. So what do we do is a question we should take seriously. We're going to start with a specific example from Holly, a listener who reached out to me with her very specific and fairly tragic story. And after Holly tells us what's going on in her life, we're kind of going to widen the lens and talk to Eli Saslow. Eli is a reporter for the Washington Post that listeners may remember from the time he was on the show with Derek Black, who he wrote about in his book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Eli has won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, he does a lot of really deep reporting on the parts of America that we tend to make assumptions about, but don't look closely at. And he wrote about this particular phenomenon a few months ago. And we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. But before anything, before we get started even trying to get our heads around the problem, let's hear about exactly what it looks like in one person's life. Here's Holly. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thanks for having me. So before we dive in, just just tell us a little bit about who you are. Give us some context. Okay. Um, so I work at NASA in Houston. Um, I'm actually an engineer. Currently, I'm working on the uh, Orion program, uh, which is supposed to be the next uh, vehicle to, you know, take us to the moon. Uh, it's replacing the space shuttle, which I actually used to work on as the flight controller, uh, which is, you know, the people, if you've seen Apollo 13, you know, the Houston, we have a problem. People, that was that you was are me. you are uh, Houston in that we have we have yes. a problem. That's you, yes, yeah. right? I'm the Houston part of right. yes, we have a problem. You're not the problem. Um, okay. Well, no, I'm not. The <laughs> I'm not the although, although it's funny, my system was the problem. So oh. if that had happened during shuttle, that yeah, that would have been my problem. All um, right. When the shuttle program ended in 2012, I uh, actually went to be a flight controller on the International Space Station, oh. um, and here I am on Orion. All right. So, yeah, so I've been here about 13 and a half years. Well, I am really actually genuinely interested in space, and we probably could have a whole conversation about space force, you know, um, and, oh, and science fiction and all those other interesting things. But the reason why we are talking is that you shared on Twitter a while ago, not too long ago, you asked how many people had experienced a breakdown in their family in the wake of recent political polarization. Uh-huh. And that's how I, you got on my radar. And also you just, you, you asked that because of what's happened with you. Right, right. Um, yeah, my mom has recently, she's always been very opinionated. And so um, we were, we were, um, we agreed pretty much politically because I, I was raised Democrat, not very liberal, but Democrat until, um, until 08 when Obama was elected, and uh, we can go into why you think she changed. But in the primary, she was very pro-Hillary. Um, and then, and then you know, when in this election, it was like she was just 
100,000% Trump, and then social media had come along. And so on Facebook, you know, I would post things. I which I just didn't follow her, so I never saw anything she posted. Um, but she would comment, and the comments were just like, you know, my friends would comment on things I posted, and she would just reply. I mean, it was so vitriolic, like, eat shit and die. Um, you know, and people were like, oh, my God, what's wrong with your mom? And I was friends with you know, my co workers on Facebook, and I would see them at work, and they would be like, what's wrong with your mom? And it was, you know, she would say things like, thank you, Putin, for saving us from the Satan Hillary. And it's like, this just came out of, like, what is wrong with my mom? And so I would post screenshots of things that she would send me, you know, after getting in Facebook arguments with my friends because they were like, why are you saying things like this to your daughter? Mm. So she would tell me things like I was disgusting and stupid. And, um, and so I would just post them on Twitter like, does anyone else have this problem, basically? And so uh, it's, yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but it's just become a thing where it's every time she just kind of goes off, I'm like, I'll, I'll put it on Twitter. And it's, it's nice because to have the support of other people, but it's also amazing how many other people are like, oh, my God, this is me. Yeah. This, this happened to me. This happened to my mom. This happened to my dad. This, me and my mom are no longer speaking because of this. And so it's, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that, that how, how common this is. Let's rewind a little bit to talk more about what happened with your mom. So you said uh, she was a Hillary supporter uh, in 2008. Very much like with you know, huge phone in, banking and door to door. And so her, pol- her policy positions, I assume, at least at that point, were kind of maybe, let's say, traditional Democratic policy positions. You know, like yeah, yeah. some government intervention is good. You know, unions are all right. I don't know, like what what we all agree on now. But my dad was very union. Like we okay. grew up very union. He was the president of the local postal workers union, the vice president of the state local postal workers union. And growing up, the narrative was just basically, you know, Democrats are for the you know poor people, the middle class, which we were middle class. And Republicans only care about rich people. Okay. So and that was just as a kid, like just how it, I understood it. All right. So w- can you think of the, the, the time, the moment or the experience where you first realized like, oh, wait, like she's going in a direction that's not good? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I knew the, the 08 election when Obama got the nomination and she was, she didn't like him. It was, it was racial. I mean, she, Mm. I mean, that's the only reason I can think of. I, I did ask her about it, and of course she denied it, but um, some of the things that she, were post, she was posting on Facebook, some of the memes were obviously very race-related, and so, um, yeah. And then, so should I assume, like, she would birth her movement kind of stuff, or? Yes, yes. Yeah. But, you know, now, if she was serious about the birther stuff, I don't know, Um I never asked her about that, but she, you know, she would post Kenyan Muslim stuff. No, I don't mm. know if that was just to, you know, just be, um, just to go along, just to go with the flow, just because it was, you know, an attack. Right. But yeah, she, she would post some of that. But if she was serious about it, I don't know. Right. I mean, that's one actually one of the problems with, with some of this stuff is that you can sort of, there's the plausible deniability of I was just being joke. I was just joking. But, right, um, right, right. 
So so definitely like sort of racialized animus to Obama. And then do you remember anything about what started to happen when Trump came on the scene? Did you was that like a, a watershed moment or was it slow yeah. or? Yeah, like, I mean, with Obama, like, she, I mean, she would just do her stuff. I kind of, I stopped, I mean, I didn't follow her at that point, you know, because it's like, okay, I don't need to see this. Um, and, you know, I was just, I wasn't really that much into politics. You know, when Obama was president, I, you know, things were good. He was a good president. I, <laughs> I really enjoyed, I liked it, you know. But right. I just, you know, when things are good, you just kind of don't pay attention. You know, now it's that Trump is here. It's like, oh, my God, we had it so good, you know, but you don't mm-hmm. think about that when you have it so good. Um so then Trump comes along or the election comes along and it's whenever she just started posting all the, you know, co- comments to my post. That's mm. when I really started to notice that this, you know, the how mean she was. And it was cruel and just getting into arguments with my friends, people who did, she didn't know. And then when um, she would stop, you know, she stop with the Facebook stuff, but then she would start texting me mm-hmm. and saying, you know, things like, you're stupid, you make me sad, you're ignorant, uh, you need mental help, you're an asshole, you make me vomit, you sound like white trash, you're disgusting. Okay. You're just low. Yeah. You're okay. Pathetic. So, Holly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull you back here because I actually do believe we should not necessarily say those things even when we're okay, quoting people about ourselves, but I appreciate you saying them. Um, to let us know. And I'm going to ask the question I, it's probably occurring to other people now, is, does that follow a breakdown in your relationship? Or was it, like, did something happen where she was angry at you? Or? No. Oh. No. That was, that just, that just started one day. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, that just, um, I mean, my dad died in 09. But, it, I mean, that had been a few years later, so I, I, yeah, I have no idea. She just went 100%. And, and that's why whenever the the cruelty, you know, and, and the, some of the things that she would say to me over text, I mean, I was just like, you know, I'd just break down in, in tears and not speak to her for a while. And then, you know, and then whenever we would finally talk, she, you know, she's like, what's wrong with you? You don't call your mother. Don't you love me? And it's like she had no idea that the, the things that she would say were, were you know, Hurtful. were mean or, or yeah. that it had that kind of effect. Yeah. Do you think that she she's just, I mean, okay, I have two things. One is what was she responding to? Were you posting like, I don't know, um, I want... A socialist America, or, or were you posting no, like, like just, news? Or no, it was just like like during the election, it was just um, you know pro Hillary stuff, okay. anti Trump stuff. But it was it was not not extreme. You know, I try to remain you know very factual. Um, you know, it wasn't just stupid memes. It wasn't it. You know, it wasn't anything that was untrue. It was like things that Trump was saying on the uh, you know the campaign trail. You know, like Mexicans are all rapists, or I'm sorry, that tr- maybe that's a trigger word. I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> you know, the people coming over our border are, um, you know, are all terrible people. Um, the you know the Muslim ban, um, right. just oh, like oh my god, I can't believe you know someone would say this. Like this is just, you know, right. this is not right. And so she would comment, you know, about just 
all of these illegals are, you know, they're taking our jobs and they're, they're all on welfare and they're just, you know, they need to go home. And, and so, um, it, it was, that's when it really started was just, you know, when I was posting, you know, pro Hillary, but anti-Trump stuff. And I guess a question I have is that, do you think in her vitriol towards you, which does sound, I mean, I am, I am so sorry that it, yeah. it sounds really, really hard. Um, was she like imitating internet commenting, you know, uh, etiquette in a way or non-etiquette? Was she just like using the language that, you know, other that maybe younger trolls use that's really rough? I mean, did she know yeah. what she was saying was being taken very no, seriously I mean, by you? No, she's always been very antagonistic. And it's, she, she's always been kind of um, either you're with me or against me. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on my team or you're not kind of person. And when and growing up, you know, when I was younger, we were kind of all, always on the same team. So that oh. was never a problem. Um, so, no, she was just using being herself, but as she always ha- kind of had been, but towards other people. But now I was the target. And she's even, this has actually gotten, you know, personal about your work too, right? I mean, um, you, you know, yeah. I mean, because people who would see the, this back and forth on Facebook or, you know, like, but just what's wrong with your mom? And, and it's, yeah, I mean, like sometimes she'll say something and it'll be just, you, you know, in a text message or something and it'll be so um, hurtful that, you know, I'll be at work the next day and I'll just be thinking about it. And so I'll go home early or, you know, because it's like, I'm just, okay, I'm sitting here at work. I'm just crying, you know, crying. and I'm not getting anything done. So if it's a slow day and I don't have a meeting or something, I'll just take a sick day and go home. And again, I'm so sorry. And I also, but she's also attacking you personally, like, all, like she's not, she's attacking your work, right? Like I, one of the th- stories that, that you told me was that she's like kind of anti-NASA now. Well, she's anti, um, so NASA has, you know, two parts. We have the science and the climate science and parts and the earth science. And then we have the human space flight aspect. Right. Um, but she's, you know, climate change denier. She's a skeptic. So, yes. Yeah, so she goes after that part. Um, but the stuff that, you know, the Merca, rah, rah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so guess- our tower flies. It's our flag on the moon. That part is fine. Right. I guess I'm kind of curious because, you know, I've had um, arguments um, with people that I'm close to, people that I love, um, where they want to uh, pick a fight with me about, you know, this is what I do for a living, right? Um, and sometimes I feel like, wait a minute, like, why are you trying to start a, you know, a fight with me on, you know, uh, sexual violence policy when you know this is like my thing yeah, that right. I do and I do know more than you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's weird. It's really weird, but like, I'm like, do you just think they're making it all up? I'm, they're using the same kind of, you know, scientific method that I am. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I know these people. They're, I, I mean, I don't, you cannot use it with, with her. You know, she's, she's stuck in Fox News land. Yeah. Her favorite show is Sucker Carlson. Mm. And she's on this, her little Facebook bubble, I guess, in her group. And this is what they tell her. And I, I don't know how to penetrate that. I, I don't know how to, even though I work here 
and I have this experience of working with these people and talking to these people, and this is what I do. I, it's like I don't know how to penetrate this, you know, this wall. It's like some force field. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Today, we are sponsored by the European Wax Center's Axe the Pink Tax campaign. The pink tax is the extra amount of money many women are charged every year for basic goods and services. And it adds up almost $1,500 a year, $1,351 a year. The pink tax is charging women more money on everything from baby bottles to canes, toys, personal care products, dry cleaning, clothes, Yeah, dry cleaning clothes. Like you ever notice, like you go buy a shirt in the men's department and it's same basic material, same basic design. It costs more and dry cleaning, just look at the bill. It's like twice as much. It's absurd and yet it exists. It is a daily reminder of the fact that we exist in patriarchy. Some people don't like to hear that word, so I'm going to say it again. It's a daily reminder that we exist in patriarchy. The European Wax Center... Hold on. They're helping us here. They are known for empowering confident women with their various programs, and they're actually fighting the pink tax themselves. They're giving women the tools to claim their worth and take back what's theirs. So now you know. Go to axthepinktax.com. Again, that's axthepinktax.com. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard and eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we are most likely not getting all the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients that most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm than good. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I have been taking Ritual for a long time. It was part of various upgrades uh, in my diet and uh, self-care regimen. It's one of my favorites, actually, and one of the easiest to stick to. It's been a while since they've been a sponsor, but I... (laughs) still keep taking them. It's a pleasure to take their minty, beautiful vitamins every morning. It's a pleasure because they're minty and beautiful, and it's a pleasure because they do not upset your stomach. They look clean and pure because they are clean and pure. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. They're transparent, in a lot of different ways, is what I'm saying. A subscription is easy to start. It's easy to snooze. I've done both of those things. I've started a subscription and snoozed a subscription. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, but you can take something in the morning. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during their first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essentials for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during the first three months at ritual.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight, 
30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Now, with Holly's story fixed firmly in our minds, let's move back. Let's take in the bigger picture. Here to help me fill in that bigger picture is Eli Saslow. Eli is a author and staff writer for the Washington Post, where he travels the country to write in-depth stories about the impact of major national issues on individual lives. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014 for explanatory reporting for a series of stories about the rise of food stamps and hunger in the United States. And he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing in 2013, 2016, and 2017. He has also been on the show before with Derek Black to talk about the book he wrote about Derek, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Eli, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we're talking about this. I am too. Um, I feel like Holly's story, while obviously it has like its own uh, very specific um, tragedy to it and um, her specific story is kind of amazing for for a lot of the details that she was able to share. I have heard this story so many times from people. I feel like I f- yeah. it's almost a cliche, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have Holly share this really specific story. But yeah, I mean it's it's I think that's kind of the staggering thing about it is um, as upsetting and, and sort of heartbreaking as it is to hear about, um, you know, the, the personal uh, fallout for, for one family from something like this. Um, what makes it so much more heartbreaking is knowing that this is happening in like a huge percentage of families. Like it's, um, there are a lot of people who believe the things that Holly's mom believe and, and who have gone down the same tunnel. You know, it's, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's 15, 20, maybe 25% of, of people in the country. Um, so it's it's a huge problem. Well, I actually have some numbers to share. Great. Uh, they're a little um, more hopeful or at least not as bad as the numbers that you're thinking of, at least from this one study. Good. Um, okay. Science Advances said that 8% of all people share untrustworthy news. People age 65 and over share 11%. 11% of those people share untrustworthy news. And also older conservatives are 14% more likely to share fake news. Right. And 
And also, again, like there's sort of the anecdotal evidence is really overwhelming. I literally like this. I think this comes up every time I talk to someone who's a fan of the show. Like they have they know someone or it's in their own family. And I, I feel like we don't talk about it enough because the conversation about radicalization of young people is something that everyone's very concerned about and wants to make take proactive steps about. But we're not doing anything about the radicalization of older people. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and and um, some of this obviously like has to do with news literacy. Um, you know, I, I think like the unfortunate truth is the root of some of these problems, and and I think even probably for Holly's mom, the the root is much more complicated. It's it's um, it's having to deal with parts of the country, uh, I think largely rural um, swaths of the country, which tend to be older, um, which which tend to be more white, which tend to be more conservative, um, that are dealing with like a real crisis of um, feeling disempowered. And and sometimes for legitimate reasons, uh, where, where like the economy has not recovered since 2008, uh, where automation will continue to take more jobs, um, and where what's taken root in these communities is like an increasing sense of isolation, loneliness, uh, that's off the charts, um, suicide rates that are escalating, you know, an, an opioid epidemic that has found like a home in these in these communities. Um, you know, and, and people are looking for answers and, and looking for ways to feel empowered. Um, and, and so I think the danger of these fake uh, and sometimes extremist ideas is that they are empowering for people and, and also they offer absolution in, in communities. I mean, if, if you can come in through somebody's computer screen and say the problems that you're having in your life, um, the things that are going wrong, they're, they're not your fault. They're happening because uh, Muslims are doing this thing or because people of color are coming across the border and, and changing your community in fundamental ways. Um, and even when those things aren't true, those are, those are powerful and dangerous ideas to provide to people who are are suffering from some real amount of, of pain and, and despair. And I, I guess, you know, I, I've shared those fake news sharing statistics because those are an interesting kind of baseline for like what actual activity there is in the world. But of course, the other numbers that are really important are the number of people that are still supporting President Trump, which I think is also a metric that we can use here, you know, um, because it is mostly older white people. And they seem right. to be willing to believe whatever it is the president is telling them. Like, I don't know if they believe some of the extremist ideas that we've heard from about Holly and her and her her mom, but they definitely are not trusting, you know, mainstream media. And they're they're putting their faith in what is this grand fairy tale that the president has been telling us about brown people being the problem. You know, right. I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think like the dark truth, if we're willing to stare into it, is is that a lot of this does trace back to race and racism and where some of these these ideas started. And frankly, where the president's rise started with the idea of birtherism and sort of, um, you know, trying to, to cast President Obama as essentially un-American. Uh, and I think for Holly's mother and for many others, um, those were the first sort of conspiracy theory type ideas, the first the first shred of real fake news um, that began to sort of, uh, you know, be a gateway drug almost into a whole belief system that is now about the deep state and um, distrust of, of all kinds of, of things. Um, and I think much of it does trace back to, to race and, and like to our country's really problematic relationship with race. 
I think that's true. And I also just want to draw a parallel here. Again, I feel like something that people talk about a fair amount is the radicalization of young people, like the the Unite the Right um, rally in Charlottesville, um, the dapper young Nazis that we have, um, uh, the young people that are that are at you know Turning Point USA, like Charlie Kirk, like they get a lot of coverage. Um, and there is some parallel between kind of the stereotype of the young, um, you know, white nationalist and perhaps these older Americans that are getting more radical to the right. And I think you sort of mentioned some of them. Loneliness is one of those things. Um, feeling like your place in the world is more uncertain than it used to be. Young white men are definitely feeling that way. Um, and I think they're not being given a new story or they don't aren't accepting right. the new story that's being offered to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's exactly right. And I think another parallel there is, is, um, you know, people who are in these vulnerable positions, people who don't feel like they have a sense of community, whether, whether this is, you know, young, young white men who are susceptible to white nationalist recruitment or older white Americans on the internet who are susceptible to fake news. And, um, you know, these, these fake ideas and these false ideas and sometimes these dangerous ideas are coming in and giving them not only like a new ideology, but also a sense of community. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that I think is, is why, uh, Facebook is a platform can sometimes be dangerous as as a vehicle for for fake news because you know I've spent time uh, in with people in parts of the country where they are, you know, where they're looking at their news feed for four, five, six hours a day because they're they're lonely, they're retired, and they don't have much of a sense of community around them, and their community has become their computer screen. And that community on Facebook is a confirming community. It it uh, it feeds your biases. You know, you're you're creating your own network of friends, and you also are clicking on pages. And for a lot of people in these homes, that's what's happening. They click on a, a far-right news page um, that then through advertising algorithms and other things like that leads them to the next page like that and the next page like that. And suddenly they're following sometimes 500, 600, 700 pages that all share the same false information. And so what they're seeing on their computer screens every day is is not just one bit of fake news. They're seeing the same thing shared again and again and again. And that's the place where they're spending time. You know, that's that's becoming the community that they feel a part of. So suddenly these aren't just ideas to them. Um, they're like a fundamental part of their identity. They're, they're the things that they think people like them also believe. Uh, and, and that's a really dangerous and scary thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a principle uh, in political uh, science and, and I guess political psychology um, having to do with the fact that once you feel a part of a group, if you're told that that group believes something, you'll accept it as your belief too. You know, yep. like it, it, it can, then yeah. that's how people, that's the, basically the shape of radicalism, right? Like you take this one thing that you are like, okay, you've convinced me of step one, which is uh, there's a, there's a crisis at the border. You've, you've, you've convinced me that there are hordes of people waiting to get in the border and you sort of join a community of people who are angry about that. And then there's sort of a right. part of that community says, and there's going to be FEMA camps for the white people, or I don't know, like what, right. whatever the next step is, but since you've already bought into that first community, being told that the same community believes the next thing gets a little easier. Yep, exactly. And and 
even when even when all of those things that are happening are not a reflection of the issues that you're facing in your real life. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time in this town, Pahrump, Nevada, uh, with a woman named Shirley who um, you know, who was in this pattern of consuming just 100% fake news, uh, things that had been created sometimes intentionally to fool her, um, but, you know, would look at her news feed every day and it was a constant stream of, you know, Michelle Obama had two babies out of wedlock in the White House and, um, you know, Sharia law is is taking over the schools in this place and this place. And, you know, after spending six, seven hours a day scrolling through this news feed, you know, Shirley then would open her window and look outside in, in Pahrump, Nevada, where things for the most part were fine. And she would be expecting to see like Antifa marching down the street. I mean, I think these, the issues were, were so urgent on her computer screen and the sense of hysteria was so high um, that she is just sitting there now waiting and believing that all of these things are going to manifest in her mostly quiet rural town um, where the problems are much different than the fake problems on her screen. Uh, but the truth is she's living more on Facebook at this point than she's living in her community. Um, and I think the scary thing is that is increasingly true for a lot of us, uh, regardless of our, our ideological beliefs and regardless of our communities. Um, we are, we're, we're spending our time with people on the screen and, and not with people in person. You know, and, that, and that, I think, that makes us more susceptible to this kind of extremism. Yeah, I want to maybe draw attention to another point of uh, inflection that ha- the people who get radicalized might have in common, um, which is that sense of excitement that you can draw from the conspiracy theories on your screen. That sense of, of it's belonging to a community and, oh, excite, like things are happening, right? Like you're a part yep. of a story, not just a part of a community, but part of a story that you can be a totally. hero in, perhaps. Yep. And yeah. I, and, and, uh, right. I, I think that's so, it's so empowering, right? And, mm-hmm. and especially for people who oftentimes feel disempowered uh, to suddenly feel like, you know the real truth. Like, I know what's actually going on here. And, um, you know, I know that it's a deep state running things. Uh, I, I know, I see below the layers that you see. Um, that makes you feel more in control, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, that's a really tempting thing, especially for people who feel like they don't have much of a sense of control over their, over their lives. I, I feel like I have to point out two things, that, uh, data points. One is that there has been some reporting that um, older people do make up a pretty large percentage of the QAnon followers, uh, yeah. which is the sort of that er conspiracy that a lot of, um, uh, not a lot of Trump supporters, but it has found purchase among Trump supporters that has to do with Trump being a genius that's actually orchestrating the arrest of all the bad guys. I'm not going to go further than that. And then the other thing I wanted to, to, to point out is that I was talking about this with a friend of mine who studies radicalization in um, in the Middle East and among Muslims. And he said, oh, you know, no one's really written about this yet, but there are also those people, um, those older people that are joining ISIS. There's actually sort of a parallel phenomenon in radical wow. Islam of like 60 wow. plus year old people um, joining the caliphate or trying to join the caliphate. And they don't, might not necessarily be the ones holding the arms, but they're answering right. the call. Right. Yeah. And I oh, think it's for gosh. the same reason. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just uh, so staggering and tragic, you know, and, and I do think like it's, I also want to be careful that we we talk about it not as just a, a problem in sort of a sixty plus demographic yeah. because I think the other the other truth is that this is 
you know, this is happening in a country um, and, and maybe like based on that example in a world at this point where there's just an increasing sense of distrust, right? Whether that's in like our major institutions, uh, like, it, you know, sort of more of an, an anti-academic sentiment and, and anti-science and uh, anti-media. Like I, I run into this in my job increasingly now all the time. Um, people who, who believe that what I'm doing is fake or not real. Um, you know, and, and uh, I think we see that manifest in all different kinds of demographics, like whether, you know, that's sometimes that's young parents who decide not to vaccinate their kids and mm-hmm. um, who might be ideologically on a totally opposite end of the spectrum than, you know, a, a 72 year old in, in rural Nevada who's who's sharing and, and spreading fake news. Um, but but I think like the distrust is something that is that is widely shared across demographics. And I, I feel also we should be careful to say that this has nothing to do with being dumb or gullible. That right. that's not what we're saying, um, or I'm saying. Yep. I think I think it's safe to say that you're not saying it either. Um, that in fact, there are studies that show um, um, among climate science deniers that they're just as well educated as people who accept the consensus on climate change, and right. and the gullibility is also not quite the right way to to think about it either, because people aren't believing everything. <laughs> right. They're believing certain stories that that resonate with them, right? Yep. And the other thing I want to point out, just in case my listenership is mostly, you know, well-meaning liberal white people, but this is not an equal and opposite phenomenon, actually. There are some phenomena like this on the left, but it is just studies show that this sharing of fake news is more prevalent on the right. And there's not really a way to get around that. For those on the left who, uh, you know, who, who minimize it or sometimes, frankly, take advantage of it and, and mm-hmm. treat this as like a, a joke or a gullible population, that that only uh, fuels the fire. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote wrote another piece uh, about Facebook where I was with a guy in rural Maine, a um, liberal guy named Chris Blair, who decided that it would sort of be funny to uh, to make fun of these, these gullible populations by creating a, a fake page um, on Facebook called America's Last Line of Defense, where he spent some advertising money to advertise it to, you know, people who liked President Trump and who were over 65 and, and, and built a massive following for this page and began to share fake stories, to invent insane stories, um, you know, like basically thinking that he was going to be poking fun at this population. Uh, and instead, of course, what happened was these stories did take hold. Um, sometimes they were shared three million times or more um, by people who believed them to be real. And then this guy, Chris Blair, realizing that he'd created this monster, tried to go back in and tell people who were sharing the stories that they were fake, um, that that they, they had been, they were gullible, they'd been duped. Um, and instead of those people saying, acknowledging that, turning back around, um, they then would say, say to Chris, the person who'd created these news, this is actually true. You have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I'm seeing tons of stories like this again and again and again. Uh, and the joke is on you. Like, you know, I think, um, the, the problem is sometimes when we, when we treat this as like, uh, ridiculous or silly, um, that does nothing to ameliorate or address the problem. Like it's, we have to go much closer to the root. And it can make it worse. I mean, in fact, I want to kind of turn the conversation to to what, if anything, we can do. Because I do think, you know, both of us have seen, and it looks like, sounds like from, you know, pr- reporting, and also I can say from personal experience, that trying to say you're wrong, you're gullible, that's a conspiracy theory, that that is actually counterproductive. And, totally agree. And 
This is where maybe we can bring on some of your other reporting, right, about our mutual friend Derek Black. I wonder, does, does that story, the story of, of, of someone who left the white nationalist movement, does that offer any insight for what kinds of things we might do to, to address the problem of not of older people, but also, you know, our other friends, neighbors, loved ones who might get sucked I, into I, this? I, I think and hope that it does. I mean, you know, and, I, and I've thought about this a lot for Holly, too. Like, like it's— um, I think the way that we can impact people um, and impact their thinking about things depends a lot on our point of contact with them. You know, if if, if we're talking about people that we know, um, that that maybe love us, that respect us, that care for us, like I'm sure is the case uh, for for Holly with her mom. Um, like if we if we can't find a way to impact those people, if we can't bring them back from sort of the edge, uh, then. Nobody can, right? Like if, 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 for instance, Holly can't find a way to reach her mom, um, if she is not the person to open that door, then the door is probably closed. Like that's, uh, that's, that's my own feeling. Like it's, um, I, th- I think like there's, there's bigger societal work that we can do. And certainly like um, civil resistance and, and, you know, various tactics that we can use for people that we don't have relationships with and we don't have a point of contact with. But when, when it's somebody that we know and, and trust and somebody who hopefully trusts us, I think we have to find a way to have these conversations, you know, and, and we have to have them in ways that don't feel confrontational because you're exactly right. Like if it, if it begins in like a space of belittlement, um, or, or condescension, the conversation is never going to go anywhere. And, and, and the divide, frankly, just widens. Um, you know, so the challenge is, I think, for, for say, Holly with her mom, um, or for many of us with members of our own family, like, fostering those kinds of conversations is challenging one time, and also one time is never, ever, ever going to do it. Like, transformations take a lot of time. Like it, it's these, these ideas are now very deeply instilled for, for large parts of our country and, and, and they're not going to evaporate quickly. So it's, it takes like sustained work and sustained conversation and with, with no certainty that necessarily it will work. And in fact, I've shared before sort of, you know, my point of view on this and my relationship with my formerly Republican husband, not a conspiracy theorist, but still someone who thought different things about the world and about our country than I did, that he only sort of started to listen to me when I gave up trying to convince him, right? Right. When that became not the point of the conversation. And to a certain yeah. degree with him, also what was what had to happen was for both of us to agree that the relationship was the important thing and we were going to sustain yeah. that. And any yep. political conversation we had was going to be in the context of continuing to have a relationship. Now, but I wanted to return to, or again, to Derek, because I feel like one of the most, you know, mind-blowing things that he said when we talked to him, talked with him on this show, was that there were sort of two sides, or at least two sides of of, of momentum or, or, you know, the, or forces that were pushing on him. You know, one of them was his partner, who he loved, who he was falling in love with, and she she was able to share with him her experience, you know, her opinions, and he was able to listen. But that also, and this is what you're referring to about maybe civil disobedience and disruption, but the acts of the, his, you know, fellow students to tell him they were angry, that he hurt them, that this wasn't okay, were also really important. 
Right. Yeah, I think uh, in that case, they were foundational, you know, because unless unless he had experienced sort of um, not only rejection, but unless he'd seen in the eyes of sort of a peer community how reprehensible his ideas were, um, he never would have been open to you know, the engagement and, and kind of the invitation that came later. Like it, it had to start with confrontation and then that made him vulnerable and opened him up to invitation. And, you know, and again, like I think this this sort of depends on on our on our point of contact with people like it's um i've thought about a lot uh you know like sort of a waitress in a restaurant who um you know when when sarah huckabee sanders or somebody else comes into the restaurant the the person who says like i'm it's not okay for you to be here i'm not going to serve you and you know and uh i think people have really different feelings about about that and whether or not that's an okay thing to do um but for me like i would say the waitress she doesn't have a chance to sit down at that table and and begin a conversation that is maybe going to change uh, somebody's mind. Like that's that's not that's not her point of contact. That's that's not what she can do. So what she has is like a small window to send a message about what she believes is and isn't okay, and and what is and isn't real. And she's taking advantage of that that moment in like the best way that she can. And you know, so I think like similarly for for people who are sharing fake news on on Facebook, there. Are are now huge armies of liberal trolls who go around um, on the internet and essentially shame people who are sharing fake information. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that as a tactic too, because I think that it is like that increases polarization in some ways. Um, it is, it is belittling. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it in some ways makes people less likely to you know, transition and move to the other side. I also can understand as a tactic thinking, you know, I'm not going to build a relationship with a stranger on Facebook. I see that they're sharing something fake. I'm at least going to go put a comment under that saying, I can't believe you believe this. Don't you see that this is fake? With the hopes that maybe then somebody in that person's friend circle on Facebook will see that comment and will have a conversation with this person about it. And, you know, I I think like there's a certain amount of policing that can be done that way uh, effectively too. I guess I want to offer sort of a, a nuance on that, which is the difference between shaming someone and and creating consequences for their beliefs or behavior. I, I do think shaming doesn't necessarily work, right? If you have the intent right. of like making somebody feel bad, that basically is only making you feel better. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think it can, I think it mostly hurts. But Yep. I think something like you're describing with the waitress declining to serve Sarah Huckabee, that's a consequence. That's like her saying, your beliefs are so objectionable to me that I just can't, I can't interact with you. Maybe someone else yep. can. I can't. Um, yep. I'm not trying to shame you. You have the beliefs that you have. I'm not trying to change your mind. She's not going to say this whole thing. But like, I feel like the attitude of that is, I can't, I'm not going to change your mind, but I do need to let you know that there is a a consequence for these beliefs that you've espoused. And that consequence is that I and maybe other people, for instance, will not will not be serving you. You know? Right. I think that's a real yep. I think that's also what probably happened with Derek and his peer group, right? I th- I think that's totally right, and and I I you know I appreciate uh, you pointing out that distinction because I think it's important. Um, you know, I also think like the the fundamental thing uh, that we all can decide to do is 
is to like invest ourselves, right? And and I think even I, I'm certainly guilty of um, seeing people in my extended family share things on Facebook that I know are fake, uh, and and not doing anything about it, not saying anything about it, and thinking like you know this person's ideas about this are never going to change. It's only going to create friction if I bring it up. Um, you know, and I think we often like take that approach, um, and and frankly, that approach only increases like polarization. Like I'm my ideas are only moving further away from that that person. Person's ideas, uh, you know, and, and so in whatever ways, like tactically, we want to go about it. Um, you know, I think it's important to make the first step to choose to, to say, like, this, what's happening here is is wrong and problematic, um, and and also like corrosive for for the country. And I am going to try to do something about it, even when that's like uncomfortable, even when the results of it are uncertain. Um, you know, I, I think like the people that I ended up admiring uh, in writing that book about Derek and his transformation, I didn't admire them because of the tactics they chose to use. Like some, some of the people who like very effectively shunned him on campus and flipped him off, those weren't necessarily things that I would have done. Um, but I admired the fact that they had the courage to do something. Like they, they decided this is not okay and we're going to do something about it. Similarly, like the, the Jewish kids on campus um, who were the victims of his anti-Semitic beliefs, uh, the, those students who decided to invite him over and build relationships with him, I think that was also hugely courageous. Like they decided we're going to do something. And, you know, and I think that is always the first step deciding like, not that we're going to throw our hands up, uh, not that this problem feels so big that, that at any level, even an interpersonal level, we're not going to take it on, but making the choice to, uh, try to like put ourselves at risk a little bit by, by trying to address the problem, um, which I think often, at least speaking for myself, like I'm not always that good at doing. Uh, I, I think it, it starts with putting a little skin in the game. Most desk chairs we're familiar with try to lock the human body into a 90 degree angle. And I'm going to be real honest, I'm sitting in one of those chairs right now. <laughs> and I can tell you when it comes to healthy posture, there's no such thing as a perfect position. And those 90 degree angles can start to feel pretty awkward. We weren't meant to stand all day or to sit all day. And we were not meant to sit at 90 degree angles on a stiff chair behind a desk. Our bodies were designed to move. And so while Fully's Jarvis Standing Desk is the best-reviewed desk in the world, it is just the foundation to a healthier way to work. Fully's Standing Desk and collection of active chairs give you the freedom to move, stretch, and be in healthier, more comfortable positions that work your body's unique and changing needs throughout the day. Fully's careful selection of active sitting chairs is what really separates them from another furniture company. Their entire collection of chairs supports healthier postures that align your spine, open up your hips, engage your core, and improve circulation. You'll feel relief immediately, and your body and back will thank you. It is a smarter, healthier way to work, a more balanced and human way to work. I like the TikTok chair personally because it doesn't take up a lot of room, and actually my husband and I kind of share one because I sit in a chair for most of the time. It's true. But the TikTok keeps me moving and it is sort of a, it's easy on the eyes as well. I think that's what I want to say about it. So to get your body moving in your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y.com slash friends. Fully. Desk, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. 
And with Everlane, you will never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. So they tell you their real costs and are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to their ethical factories that they work with. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer because Everlane sells directly to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. I am a big fan of their sweaters, although it's getting to be the end of sweater weather, I guess, for most people. It is still sweater weather in Minneapolis, and their cashmere collection is coming in really handy. Just simple, lovely, light, but cozy cashmere. Um, I guess that's a lot of different cashmere, but... I like the kind of classic simplicity of the Everlane style. Uh, They also make really cool shoes, which I have mentioned before. I wear their mules um, when we're completely out of sweater weather. I I look forward to wearing them some more. Uh, They also have stuff for men, bags, backpacks, uh, denim. Uh, I have a pair of their jeans that are actually also kind of waiting to come out because they're wide leg. And I think that wide leg jean is really more appropriate to spring and summer than winter. I'm looking forward to wearing them. If you want to look at some stuff that you can look forward to wearing, check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash friends. That's my personalized collection and guaranteed free shipping on your first order at everlane.com slash friends. I wanted to offer something else that's a little hopeful here, which is that Though older people are more likely to share fake news, a similar study found they're also more likely to share news from fact-checking sites. And I think that actually those things might be kind of parallel. And, and I, don't, I think this is maybe where the, the issue of older people, um, you know, falling into conspiracy theory um, rabbit hole and the younger people being radicalized into white nationalism, I think there's a, maybe a split. is because I think these older people, if I'm going to, you know, wildly kind of theorized from those two data points. But maybe what they're looking for is really certainty and community. And they're still maybe in a way more available to to have that offered to them from another side, you know? Yep. Yeah, I I think that's totally true. And I, I also think, you know, and I'm sure you have a similar experience sometimes in your job. Like the thing that makes me so hopeful all the time is that these like the prejudices and and the stereotypes um, that that we sometimes hold about each other are are very easy to hold from afar. Like it's it's easy to be certain about things that you're only seeing on your computer screen. And in my job, I now like have the feeling all the time of going and showing up and reporting in these communities where when I call and I I say I'm coming from the Washington Post, um, I'm starting behind with people because they believe that I'm fake news, that I think certain things, and they believe that I am fundamentally different from them. But when I show up as a person uh, and I've been there sometimes just for a half hour like as a person to them in their life like all of these things go away right like it's it's um, that happens pretty quickly like if we find ways to engage with each other I think you actually make a lot of progress really quickly like what what makes me nervous in my job now um, is that 
that is harder as as a journalist frankly it's harder than than it's ever been before at least since I've been doing this job because it is it's harder to gain trust in in places there's there's more distrust and and I worry you know for the Washington Post for the New York Times for all of these big media institutions that there's there's a natural inclination to um to sort of turn toward your audience and and these places also in our polarization have experienced huge audience growth um mostly ideologically on the left you know and and uh, I think like the danger is if if places begin to turn toward that audience um, because it's easier because because that's the audience that's re- receptive. Uh, that's a huge problem. Like we we have to find ways also as journalists, I think, to cut through the polarization and to make sure that we're doing a good job telling the stories fairly from all communities. Uh, and and you know that doesn't mean giving credence to things that are fake or to ideas that are fake. Um, I'd, I'd say actually it means calling out those things for inaccuracies whenever whenever that's the case. But it does mean going and spending time and digging into like the root causes of the problems um, and paying attention because often that's what people want is for somebody to pay attention to the things that are making them feel disenfranchised. I have a couple of thoughts in response to that. One is you don't have to say anything about this, but what you're talking about, about turning towards your audience is one of the reasons I don't like democracy dies in darkness as a slogan for a certain newspaper. Uh, and the other thing is, I agree that that um, paying attention to people who feel disenfranchised is really important. And uh, white Americans feel disenfranchised. I also feel like it's important to point out to them that they're actually not. Um, that the, the, the whatever they're feeling, and they have a real experience, right? Their experience is their experience, and you can't argue with it. But right. But the thing, but there, it's not does not match up with the actual power structure in the country, and I also feel like this sort of leads into another way that I think we can talk about maybe doing something to to turn people away from that rabbit hole, which is that the most I've found the most effective way to get people to rethink their ideas if their ideas are, are bigoted or racist or conspiracy theory like is to offer them my personal testimony or the testimony of someone else that's seen something different, right? Right. And you, yeah. that has to be someone they trust, right? So that's like what you're talking about, like in the context of a relationship, you can't just like show them an article, <laughs> you know? Right, totally. You have to be like, this is what I saw. And that's harder to argue yep. with. Yeah, it's 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 a lot harder to argue with, you know. And and I think um, you're also right, of course, that uh, white people in the country um, are not disenfranchised. Like they are, uh, you know, they're they're privileged in many respects. But that's a really hard conversation mm-hmm. to have with people who uh, who do not feel privileged and and who, you know, frankly, um, at this moment in some of these places have reasons to feel disenfranchised, not by race, um, certainly not because they should have, you know, any any sense of, of feeling like uh, they are racially disenfranchised. But some of these communities where these ideas are growing, uh, you know, like rural hospitals are closing yeah. at record rates and communities are fading out. Like they, there are real problems that, that make them feel like something here is not working. Uh, and again, I think the challenge is 
to acknowledge that hurt, acknowledge that pain, and then have conversations about the real reasons mm-hmm. that that those things aren't working. And the real reasons are not because people are coming from Mexico or from Central America to take the jobs in these communities. That's not that's not happening. That's not real. Um, but it's a much easier thing to point to and to talk about than than to talk about like sort of loneliness and corrosive communities and and um, you know and and like the psychological pain that has led to a lot of of like the opioid epidemic and everything else. Yeah, I think that um, first of all, I wanted to mention you, you were talking about the opioid epidemic as a as it relates to this, and I I do volunteer work in a treatment center. And the number of older people that are coming in uh, with opioid addictions is pretty surprising. Like I'm, yeah, I think we're seeing the same phenomenon again. There's sort of a, it's happening for young people who feel displaced and alienated, and there's a similar thing happening for older people. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is that we're, I think we're we're agreeing. I know we're agreeing, because but I'm just going to put it a little shorter for my short attention span which is that I I think you can definitely and you should validate people's feelings of disenfranchisement and feelings of pain and alienation because those things you, I I would never argue to someone, no, you're not alienated, right? Right. Like you're definitely feeling that. (laughs) And I see you're feeling that. And I I agree that your feet, that you, that feeling is real for you. Right. Yep. Yep. And that's the part we don't do a good job with, I think. Like, we try to jump to the next step, which is that, no, but this is what's really happening, right? Right. Yep. The first step has to be, yes, I understand you or I want to understand you. Yeah. I mean, the first step, I think if you are trying to engage with somebody interpersonally, the first step has to be listening. Like that's, I mean, at least as, as a journalist, I'm sure it's the same for you. That's mm-hmm. how I know how to build trust. Like yeah. if you, if you go and you pay attention and you listen to somebody, um, that, that, that is like a reflection of the fact that you care. Like it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's often that simple. And and if you're willing to listen, and even in some of these cases, if you're willing to listen through some of the crazy, um, if you, if you feel like you have the, the the strength and the sustainability to do that. And I think that then earns you a much longer rope to sort of talk about those ideas with the person that you're, that you're having the conversation with. And, you know, and, and, always I think it 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 helps in any conversation to find points of agreement right so it's um you know acknowledging the fact that yes uh, some of the things that are happening in your life are are trend lines that are are not your fault and that are um that are, that are horrible and and there are real problems that we have to address that is true but uh, blaming that on this this or this like here's why I think that that is not true and that that's a problem and um, you know and, and again this stuff is really complicated because it goes back to uh, real racism that exists in huge swaths of the country. I mean, like I, I was stunned in in reporting the book about Derek to see these polls again and again that show that a third of white people in the United States believe that they experience more prejudice and more discrimination than people of color or, or Jews, which is wildly, wildly <laughs> off base. It's, it's like so detached oh, from reality yeah. that it's hard to even know how to start a conversation in that space. Um, but the fact that that much sort of false white grievance continues to exist, I think it it means that blaming these other things on on other people um, has real power in the country, and and unfortunately, that's because like white supremacy and racism is like part and parcel of what the country has been, and these these things are really historically embedded into what America is, and so this this like 
false and dangerous and scary sense of ownership that I think becomes a big part of the language for for white people often um, in rural areas who feel aggrieved. Uh, that sense of ownership, unfortunately, is something that historically the United States has emboldened. Um, and, and so, you know, this goes into taking on much bigger problems uh, with with what our structures are and 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 where we've come from as a country, too. And this is also a real good example of how white people need to take care of their people. Um, that that's the job. What we're talking about is the work of other white people to do the educating and the reaching out. Um, I think Derek was really great and clear about this, that people who are from marginalized communities, this is not their job. They don't, they, they don't have to do this work. <laughs> right. We should point out, though, that if you, you're experiencing, like, actual, like, abuse from a person, if it's not just someone being racist and wrong, but they're targeting you, whether that's because— uh, you're a person from a vulnerable community or just someone that that person is targeting, you know, you you get to tap out on this one. It is not your responsibility to try and do the work if that's the situation. No, it, it shouldn't be their responsibility. And frankly, like for as Derek told me many times, like when he when he was a white nationalist and and sort of recruiting for for white nationalists like they, you know, because of his uh his horrific prejudices, he was less likely to listen mm-hmm. and respect a person of color anyway. So, so it's, you know, he would often say that it was the white voice in the room that had, that had the power to squelch um, those racist conversations. And, and I think, I think there's truth to that. And this goes back to something that I, I think you and I are both kind of trying to take responsibility for in this conversation, which is yes, in your own personal life as a white person, you as a white person, me as a white person, when our friends, loved one, neighbors, whatever, say something objectionable, we have to, we get to have the opportunity to say something if if we so choose, if we want to be invested. We're the yeah. ones who can do and, something. And and I would say, like, it's our responsibility to do something. And and that's um, that's a hard thing to tell people. Like, that's to think about you know, say Holly and everything she's been through with her mother, um, you know, to, to say that like, this is, this is something that, uh, ideally like you have to find a way to continue taking on. Like that's, um, you know, the, the emotional toll of that already is profound and, and like figuring out a way ahead is really hard. But again, like if she can't reach her mom, um, if, if she can't talk about these things with her mom, then, then who can, like, that's, that's it. You know, it's, um, so I think, for that reason, like it's, we, we have to keep trying and we have to keep having these conversations because otherwise like this, this gigantic wedge that we see, uh, you know, dividing the country in, in always like ideologically, economically, urban, rural, like that, that wedge continues to exist if we stop trying and frankly continues to widen if we stop trying to even find ways to reach across it. Like that's, you know, it's, I think that's the, the, the pretty simple truth. And that seems like appropriately somewhat hopeful, somewhat grim. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like, the stakes are high. Uh, the stakes are high, but we we can do something. Like yeah. it's it's uh, we can do something. All right. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I do want to underscore something that Eli and I mentioned, which is that. As important as it is for white people to look after our own, as important as it is for white people to do the work of re-educating those who have drifted down the path of white nationalism, as important as that is, it's not your job in every situation. 
Uh, if you are someone from any kind of vulnerable community, I would not put this work on you. And if you are an abusive relationship with the person who's drifted down the path of white nationalism, this is definitely not something you need to do. And I'd even say, if the relationship is unequal, this is not work you need to do. If we're going to be helpful to other people who need help being made whole, we need to be whole ourselves. So you get to work on that first. And that is good work to be doing. It's one of the most important jobs you have. And that is why every week I remind you to please take care of yourselves. See you next week. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.